Thank you for listening to the Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a series called Respectable Sins right now. You see, there are destructive behaviors that nobody would support, like lying or stealing. But sometimes the most dangerous sins are the ones that nobody thinks are wrong. And so we're taking a look at those respectable sins that have become such a part of our behavior that we hardly even notice them. Or worse, we scoff at the idea of not doing them. So let's identify how things like vanity, greed, consumption, the things we watch, might be keeping us from the freedom that we desire. And as always, be sure to reach out to us if you need anything at all at tablechurchdsm.org. Good morning, church. Our scripture today is found in Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 21. It's known as the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it is. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Table Church. It's a privilege to be here with you today. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, I want to invite you, if you have a a copy of the scriptures, uh, Cheryl just read it from Luke chapter 12, but feel free to open there if you haven't. Um, I would love for you to follow along with us as we dig into the scriptures today. It's always a good thing to see it for yourself in your own Bible. You never know when something's going to jump out at you and you're going to want to make a note or something so that next time you read the passage, you'll... You'll see that and remember. So there are different postures that we can take when it comes to reading scripture. And I think that one posture would be that of standing over the text. Standing over the text is what we often do when we come to the Bible, particularly us modern individuals. Uh, Standing over the text is where we treat the Bible like it's lying on an operating table and we are dissecting it. It's something that we are in charge of, that we control. We are the objective one. The Bible is the thing that we are explaining. This is a common posture to take today, standing over the Bible, because we generally think that we have the answers, and we're coming to the Bible to see if it measures up to our sensibilities. And if it doesn't measure up to our sensibilities, well, then we discard it or discard the parts that we don't like and keep the parts that we do. That's what standing over the Bible looks like. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that that cannot be our posture. 
we must take a different posture, one that I would call sitting under the text. Not standing over the text, but sitting under the text. When you sit under the text, you don't say, well, I like that part, I didn't like that part. Rather, if you have a problem with the text, you say, well, what part of me needs to change then? That's what happens when we sit under the text of Scripture. It's as though we're sitting under the teachings of a master, of our master, because that's actually what's happening, particularly when we read Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. So it is hard to think of a parable that Jesus tells that the American church needs to sit under more than the one you just heard read. We're in a series right now called Respectable Sins, and we're talking about the sins that have become respectable in society today, the things that we have normalized, the things that we don't, we don't look sideways at them anymore. I mean, things like murder and stealing, those aren't respectable. People might steal and lie a lot still in our culture, but we're not going to defend it, right? But there are other things that we do defend, we justify, we, we find ways to make it okay for us to do them. That's what we're talking about in this series, respectable sins. We are the cultural embodiment of the seagulls from Finding Nemo, the ones that are constantly chattering, mine, mine, mine. That's like what we've become. And that's why today I want to talk about the respectable sin of greed. So this parable begins with a request. A man tells Jesus to adjudicate between him and his brother. He wants Jesus, he wants to divide the, Jesus to divide the inheritance between them. Now this might seem like kind of a random thing to ask Jesus. It's actually not that random because Jesus was a rabbi. A rabbi in Jewish culture is just like a wise teacher and it wasn't uncommon to come to a rabbi in order to have legal matters disputed. After all, they have like this storehouse knowledge of the law. And so this man expected Jesus to reach into that deep well of knowledge about the law, the Jewish law, and to, to come up with some sort of a directive or a wise saying or something that would bring clarity to this dispute that he was having. But if this guy was looking for a straightforward answer, he came to the wrong rabbi. Because Jesus rarely ever gives straightforward answers when people ask him something. So Jesus' response here begins with a warning. He says, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And this guy's probably thinking, oh, yikes, Jesus, relax, man. I was just asking you a question. I didn't come here for a sermon, you know. But, you know, Jesus' response here, it does a couple of things. First of all, it, it forces us to push past what's on the surface and get to issues of the heart. You see, Jesus has no interest in being the family lawyer. He says, who appointed me judge between you? Rather, he's interested in what's happening in, in his heart, in the man's heart. And the thing that jumps out at me from Jesus' warning is, is this. He says that there are all kinds of greed. In other words, Jesus seems to think there's different kinds of greed out there. And, you know, there's the obvious kind of greed that you see in companies like Enron or, you know, nasty uh, landlords. Like people who don't care about suffering and are just going to try to squeeze whatever they can 
out of you for their own profit. You have that kind of greed. But then there's a more subtle kind of greed. There's a greed that parades around masking itself as wisdom or frugality. That can be a kind of greed as well. In fact, I think that that's the kind of greed that's, that's on display in this parable today. And I think that's also why this parable can make us so uncomfortable. Because you see what's so hard about this parable is that nobody technically does anything wrong. Like this guy, this rich man, he just kind of does what we all think you should do. He does the stuff that most of us would do. He does the stuff that most of us were taught to do. He has a surplus of grain, and so he builds barns in order to save it, and he gets to retire early. Like the stuff that this guy does, we find downright virtuous. We look at him and we say, hey, yeah, I want to be like him. How do I model my life in such a way that I can end up like that guy? And yet God calls him a fool. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So what makes him a fool? Well, there are a few things that I notice that might clue us in. But it's a little subtle. And so we have to look closely here. The first thing I notice is this. He's already rich. That's not what makes him a fool. But it's going to be part of the picture. He's already rich. Even before he gets this surplus of crops, is look at what it says in verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Okay, so let's just, we can deduce a few things about this guy just from those sentences right there. He's already rich and he's got nowhere to store his crops, which means he's already probably got some barns that are full of crops. He's already got more than he needs and he's just going to add to that. He's a rich guy who's getting even richer. That's what's going on here. And now, that might not necessarily be a problem, but, he, but if it wasn't for the second part. Number two, he thinks only of himself. Listen, I went through the verse, the passage, and I counted. This guy refers to himself 11 times in just four verses. Or sorry, just four sentences. Let's take a look. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Not only is he having this conversation with himself, by the end of it, he's referring to himself in the second person. Like this guy's the center of his universe. And not once does he stop and think, well, who else might benefit from all I have? Never does he say, I've already got these barns full of things. Why do I need bigger barns? I wonder, I wonder who could use this, this extra grain that I've got. He never does that, does he? All he thinks about is how easy he's going to have it. He's, think, he's thinking about how he's going to party. The third thing I notice is this. He gives God no credit. In the ancient world... People understood everything to come from the hand of God. That was just, that was the worldview. Everything came from the hand of God or from your gods or whatever it is that you worshiped. 
okay, rain, sun, famine, harvest, everything was given to you by your God. And yet it never occurs to this guy to ask himself, well, gee, who made the ground that my crops are growing in? Who sent the rains that made them grow? Who, who sent the sunshine for, for the crops? It never occurs to him to do any of that. And in fact, it feels like this guy's a man ahead of his times. He's thinking more like a modern contemporary individual than he is like an ancient person. Like I said, ancient people, they, they, they had a much better idea of the, the holistic interconnectedness of life. They understood a much more agrarian society, much more connected to the earth than we are now. Uh, they understood how contingent our lives are upon so many other forces that we don't control. This guy is not thinking that way, is he? He's thinking more like we do. We think, well, I, I'm the one who made what I got. I'm a self-made person. I earned everything that I have. We don't tend to realize just how interconnected we are. We don't tend to realize how contingent so much of what we have is. The fact that I was born at a certain time, in a certain place, to a certain family. Like, we don't think about all of those. Or the person that came into my life that helped me, that gave me that, like, we don't think about stuff. We just think about the fact that I did it. That's how this guy's thinking. All he sees is the problem of not knowing where to put everything he's got. And so God comes to him and says, you fool. Tonight your life will be demanded of you. Then who gets all your stuff? In other words, you don't take it all with you when you go six feet under. If you've got a million dollars in your bank account right now, guess what? When you die, you're not going to take a penny of it with you. Somebody else is going to get your stuff. This shows us how silly it is to act like we really own anything. Anything you have is yours for a moment. And it's just passing along to somebody else. Living with clenched fists never lasts for long. One way or another, you're going to say goodbye to it. So if I were to say in one sentence what I think this parable has for us today, it's this. We must become more concerned with how much we're giving than with how much we're getting. I think that's the call of a disciple of Jesus. To become a person who's more concerned with how much you're giving than with how much you're getting. Think about this for a moment. In the last six months, how much have you worried, thought about, concerned yourself with how much you make? If you, if you work a job right now, how much have you spent, how much time have you spent thinking about how much you make? And now ask yourself this. In the last six months, how much, have you, how much time have you spent thinking about how much you give? My guess is that for most of us, we've spent more time concerned with how much we make. And then actually thinking about how much we give has been maybe rather fleeting, if it's even happened at all. But I think that a follower of Jesus, our, our call is to flip that. To be thinking about ways that we can give more, ways we can become more generous with what we have. You're probably thinking, well, why would I, why would I do that? I know that that's not... The way we're wired, it's not often what we're trained or raised to think. So why would I ever want to worry more about how much I give than with how much I get? Well, here's why. Because according to the Bible, wealth is dangerous. You know that? According to the Bible, wealth is dangerous. Now, notice what I said. My words were carefully chosen. I did not say wealth is wrong or sinful. 
I said it's dangerous. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Do you feel the weight of that teaching? Wealth is dangerous because it has more power to tempt us away from the things of God than virtually anything else. Maybe anything else, I don't know. It has a magnetic pull that is so strong that only those who are truly secure in their faith can withstand it. Wealth in the hands of the spiritually immature is like scissors in the hands of a toddler. It can do immense damage to your soul. John Wesley, he made a certain amount when he began his ministry, and it wasn't much, but it was enough. And over the years, as the movement that he led grew and grew and grew and became one of the most phenomenal international revivals that the world's ever seen, he lived off the same amount until he died. And he just gave away everything he made on top of it. Because he knew. He's got lots of really, really scathing sermons about this. He knew how dangerous wealth can be. Listen to what Richard Foster says. He says, we are dealing with dynamite. Wealth is not for the spiritual neophytes. They will be destroyed by it. Only the person who has clean hands and a pure heart can ever hope to handle this without contamination. So notice, it's not that it is wrong to be wealthy. Rather, it is that we who are wealthy are playing with fire, but it can be done. When the disciples heard Jesus' teaching about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they're like, well, I've never seen a camel that small. Apparently it's impossible. They say, who, who can be saved then, Jesus? And here's what Jesus says. He said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, so let's just, let's just realize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yes, a wealthy person can enter the kingdom, but it requires a miracle. That's what he's saying. He's saying it can't happen without God. Any more than a camel can go through the eye of a needle. A wealthy person requires God. And so what this means is that discipleship with wealth requires us to cling to God more than we ever thought we needed to. Now, I know some of you right now, you're thinking of your rich friend. You're like, oh, I wish they could hear this. <laughs> Before we shove this off on someone else, I have to say it. How many cars do you own? Do you own a house? How many subscription services do you pay for? There's a good chance, I'm not going to speak for everybody here, right? There's a good chance many of us would probably qualify by most historic and global standards as rich. And I would too. So here's the good news. Wealth may be dangerous, but with God's help, it is an incredible opportunity. God blesses people with wealth, and these people steward a tremendous and sacred kingdom responsibility. 
The Bible even refers to giving as a spiritual gift. Look what Romans says. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. But if it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. Listen, if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Okay, so, so some of us apparently are given a gift of generosity. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that gift sounds awful. I want one of the cool ones. Healing, I want that gift. This is not a lame gift. Because listen, it, this gift is not for the faint of heart. Look what Richard Foster says. He says, this is no beginning step, no easy work. Only one skill in spiritual warfare should ever attempt it. A person is needed who can receive $50,000 from the hand of God one day and at the divine prompting, give it all away the next. Listen to me. If you find a generous Christian, chances are you've just found a spiritually mature Christian. The gift of generosity is a high and holy calling. It's vital for the body of Christ as well. Now, some people have the gift of giving. I believe we all have the responsibility of giving. And I'd even go further than that. I'd say we all need to give for our own sakes. Now, the Christian tradition has this wonderful practice built in. And it's designed to help us keep the snarling monster of greed on a short leash. It's called tithing. In the Old Testament, God asked his people to give 10% of what they had. And then you get to the New Testament. And you know what? Jesus affirms the practice of tithing. In fact, he goes to the Pharisees and he says, Hey, Pharisees, I noticed that you're tithing a tenth of your, like your spices, a tenth of your mint and your dill and your cumin. So just imagine these guys with their, I mean, how much cumin do you need? They've got like a little pile of cumin and they're like with their little knives, like sectioning off a tenth of it. That's their tithe. And Jesus is like, hey, nice work. I mean, that's great, you know. He doesn't disapprove of it. In fact, he affirms it. But he goes on to say, but just make sure you're not neglecting the weightier matters of the law while you're at it. Because that was their problem. They were tithing off their spices, but they weren't like loving people, you know? And so Jesus is like, you need, you need both of these. He's not saying don't tithe. He's saying, hey, we can have both, you know? And so Jesus affirms the practice, it seems to me. But I would say that he even goes beyond it. I would say that the New Testament pushes us past tithing and into generosity. And so that means that uh, there is no clear answer to the question, how much should I give? The biblical answer to that question is, yup. How much should I give, pastor? Yup. That's, that's the biblical answer. Now, our denomination, the Wesleyan Church, if you're a member of Table Church, it requires a 10% tithe. That's, that's just something that our denomination says, look, all members need to tithe 10%. That's a part of what it means to be a member at Table Church. But I believe that our aim should not to should not be to see that as the start of our generosity or as the end of our generosity, but the start of it. So I've tithed 10% ever since I got my first job when I was like 14 years old. I've done it ever since. And, you know, never, never necessarily had a high-powered money-making career, but God has always been faithful to us. And, and we can tithe now 10% to Table Church and we give beyond that. We, have, we 
we give to Poetis every month and we have a compassion child that we support. You know, like God honors generosity. I really think that happens. But I still find that, you know, I've got a long ways to go in my own heart when it comes to defeating greed. Let me just tell you a little story about myself. I've shared this before, so good news is nobody remembers. But if you do remember, you should get a prize. So a while back, I was with a friend from high school, and his dad was there as well. And they were both just talking to me about table church. They weren't just sitting how it's going, you know. We started the church, and I was telling them a little bit about the church and um, what we were doing in the community and things like that. And pretty soon, my friend's daddy pulls out his checkbook, He scribbles out a check, tears it out, and puts it in my hand. He said, here, this is for the church. I said, thank you so much. And I put it in my pocket, didn't look at it, just put it in my pocket. I went home that night, and I pulled out the check, and I looked at it, and and it was a $500 check written out to Phil Wiseman, not Table Church. And immediately, my mind went to, oh, I could keep this, and nobody would ever know. In fact, I got to put it in my bank account before I can even give it to Table Church. Like, I could just keep this money. And so I put it in my bank account, and I'd like to say I immediately wrote a check to Table Church for $500 on top of what I was already given. I didn't do that, though. Uh, in fact, I waited a while, just kept forgetting, you know? And every now and then, it'd like pop up in my brain. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I should probably do that. It took me a while. I'm not going to tell you how long it took me. It took me a while, but I did eventually do it. I eventually wrote that $500 to table church, and I immediately felt so much better. But here's the thing I learned. Like, you know what money does to you? Like, it messes with your head. Stuff that, you know, if it was somebody else, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you should give that money to the church. I guess what it was for. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, the, the ways you start to justify it. In my mind, I'm like, oh, he, he probably actually, that's what he actually meant. He meant for it to go to me. I'm pretty sure that's what he actually meant. I'm like, no, I don't think that's what he meant. He said it was for the church. You're talking about the church. Well, in his, in his mind, Table Church and Phil Wiseman, it's all kind of the same thing. <laughs> you know, you're like, your mind starts to do weird things. Like, I become Frodo in Lord of the Rings, and like, the ring starts to mess with you, you know? That's what's going on here. And then eventually God would just like, you know, knock me out upside the head, snap me out of it or whatever. And when I did give the money to the church, I felt great about it. But here's the thing. I can see why the Bible treats wealth almost like it's a force with a mind of its own. Do you know the Bible talks about money like it's like personified? Look what it says in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see what it's doing here? It's, It's giving money almost this anthropomorphized sense, like this personified sense, like it's a force with a mind that can control you. It can be your master. Old school translations of the English Bible say this, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now mammon is this word that they used long ago to describe the personified sense of money, almost like the name of a demon that had to do with greed. And you can like Google mammon and you'll find like old artwork, pictures of like a demon attracting people and stuff. Like that's mammon, you know? 
they, they, they understood this sort of almost power or force that it has. And I really do think that the ring in Lord of the Rings is a good like, analogy for what we're talking about here. It just kind of gets in your head. That's why whenever we talk about giving at Table Church, which, by the way, doesn't happen that often. This might be the third or fourth time it's happened. It's very much, we talk about it because we believe it's a matter of our own spiritual health. And so what if we flipped the script on money? What if we got more concerned with how much we're giving than with how much we're getting? I want you to do something for me here. I want you to take your spiritual pulse, do a heart check here at the end of this message and ask yourself how you're feeling about everything I've said. Are you bothered by this sermon? You know, I've used a lot of scripture here today. I think that what I've said is got a scriptural basis to it. Happy to be proven wrong, but I, I think it's true. And so if you're bothered, ask yourself, could it be not that Pastor fills off his rocker, but could it be conviction? You know what conviction is? It's when the Holy Spirit starts to put his finger on something that needs to change. And it's usually kind of a tender spot. Usually kind of stings a little bit when God starts to do that. And you know, if you get unreasonably angry or annoyed at something, that's often a good sign that that thing has you, that it's got you. And so if that's how you're feeling, I'd simply humbly suggest that you consider those questions. But on the other hand, maybe you're not feeling annoyed, maybe you're feeling inspired. Maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe you are right now excited you're thinking, I have not figured out how to give more lately. I, I've, it's happened, actually happened to me. Every week I preach my sermon to the staff, and I was preaching this sermon to some of our staff this week. And as I preached it, I said out loud, I just remembered, I got a raise in June but never increased my tithe. And I went and did it right then. Maybe some of you are like, it's been a while. I actually, I'm making more now than I was last time I, you know, checked on how much I'm giving. Maybe, maybe I should go crunch some numbers. Giving can be such a joy if we let it. And so listen, if that's you, if if you are excited about this, then let's slay the monster of greed together. And the way to begin is not with some Herculean effort. It's not by being a hero. It's by starting small and increasing from there. Maybe there's no way for you to give 10% right now. For some of us, that's the case. But maybe you can start with 5% or 2%. The question isn't, what's the number? The question is, where's your heart? Are you giving what's easy? If it's easy, then it's probably not generous. And so if you're giving generously or not, that's something only you can answer. And whatever it is, I want to challenge you to commit to giving. I, I do think, I do think it is a biblical mandate to support your local church. Um, and here's the bottom line nobody's ever going to get rich off table church at least I mean we already talked about globally historically like many of us here are you're right so in that sense maybe but not by our standards you know Pastor Phil not going to be driving a Bentley 
I'm not going to be on the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account. You guys ever seen that? <laughs> this is an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, and it's pictures of preachers with like $1,200 shoes. I'm not going to be on that Instagram account. But we do have dreams about how to expand our generosity and our ministry. How we can serve more in our community. We've got all sorts of things. We've got a gaggle of young people coming up into middle school. And it's like, wow, we, we're going to need to really actually tackle the question of youth ministry here soon, you know? That might take some money. we got dreams about a building. Like our own building, you know? Someday, somehow. And if you're like, why do we need a building? Just talk to the worship team. They'll tell you why. They come here like 6.30 in the morning every Sunday. Like we got dreams about how we can, exp- how we can serve more, how we can do more. We got immigrant connection that's starting. That's going to take some money. Like there's all sorts of things that we can do if we all come together with generosity. It'll be amazing to see what God can do through us. And so the challenge today is to think about your giving. Uh, there's a QR code that we can put up on the screen. You can scan it with your phone if you want. It takes you to the giving page. You can go to the website. Uh, or if you want to do like an automatic tithe where it automatically withdraws, um, you can mark that on your connection card and we will get in touch with you and give you instructions on how to set that up. It's very simple. Um, there's any manner of things you can do in order to slay this monster of greed. And, and my, my encouragement would be... Um, to tithe to Table Church, but don't let that be the end of your generosity. That's what we do. We give 10%, but we don't give more than that. But we do give, we don't give more than that to Table Church, but we do give more than that to other things. And so that would just be something I would encourage you to pray about doing. So how can you be generous today? What's God calling you to do? Are you feeling inspired? If so, that's the Holy Spirit's prompting. Let's see where it goes. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that today you would um, give us the courage um, and the wisdom to, like Richard Foster said, be skilled in spiritual warfare, to recognize where the enemy is trying to lie to us about money, where it's taking a hold of us, where it shouldn't. And Lord, let us just have open hands that you can use to bless this world, to further your mission. Lord, we may be a relatively small church, but there's no stopping a church that comes together in generosity. And so may that be us, I pray. We love you in your name. Amen.